Hello everyone, welcome to Mind Over Matter. Following the short taster episode I launched just last month, this is the first full episode and it's called The Sound of the Hum. My name's Lisa and I'm going to be a podcast host, so let's cue that jingle and get this episode started. Thank you so much for joining me for the sound of the hum. I'm going to use the next 30 minutes or so to elaborate a little bit more on some of the stuff that I spoke to you about in the taster episode. More specifically, I'm going to share with you the backstory of how Euphrenity was created and what exactly Euphrenity is. Now, I appreciate that there will be some listeners who know the backstory from the talks that I do, the workshops, the retreats. For you guys, you can skip on over to the next episode of the podcast. But for those of you that don't know me and are not familiar with the work that I do or or why I do it, then please keep on listening. Get yourself comfy, maybe grab a drink, sit back, relax, and we're going to dive right on in to the sound of the hop. I think it's super interesting because out of all of the Mind Over Matter episodes I've recorded, this has been without a doubt the hardest and most challenging episode to put together. And I think there's a few reasons for that. Um, anyone that knows me knows that I'm, I'm always a little bit reluctant and nervous to talk about the backstory of Euphrenity. When anyone ever asks me how Euphrenity came to be, I always skip right through Um, to what exactly it is and kind of fail to tell people about the backstory and the detail of it. And I think there's a number of reasons for this. I think whenever I think about the backstory, my mind kind of oscillates between two realms of thought. Firstly, the fear that it might come across as a little bit self-indulgent. And secondly, the fear of it being heard and potentially perceived as this sort of sensational story that's highly unrelatable. And so I have this constant like internal battle going on in my mind. Um, So to alleviate those fears and perception in my own thoughts, I'm going to address those two narratives out loud. Self-indulgent, I absolutely hope that it isn't. Um, But I'm not going to go into the finer, finer detail of the backstory. It's more going to be a brief synopsis. But if you do want the full graphic self-indulgent version, then please head on over to my website, www.euphrenity.com. If you click on the About Me page, then all you need to know will be there. Sensationally unrelatable. Um, I'd like to be really, really clear in saying that there may be some parts of this story that you can relate to. um, And there will be parts of the story that you absolutely can't relate to. And that's okay. But but there is one cast iron guarantee that I'm going to give you. There will be one part of the story that I know for sure that you will absolutely be able to relate to. And by chance, this is the most important part of the story. So let's join some dots. Let's give some clarity, some insight and some credibility to Euphrenity. In the Taster episode, I alluded to a life experience that led me on an exploratory journey deep into the depths of my own mind. So I'm going to put some more context behind that now. 
On the 31st of March 2016, I had a 10-hour awake craniotomy, in other words, brain surgery, to remove a benign brain tumour that lay deep in the depths of my left um, temporal lobe. It was a massively risky operation that carried with it um, a chance of a stroke, a hemorrhage and even death. Um, It also gave a guarantee that I would have to learn to read and write and talk again. I think it's really important that at this point I say it was a choice operation. I had to make the decision whether or not to have the brain surgery. And I'm going to speak more about that decision a little bit later. Before I do, let's go back in time a little bit because obviously there was a whole load of catalogue of events and experiences that led me to embark on making this life-changing decision to have to have brain surgery. So it all started back in the 90s when I was 14 years old and in school. I started to experience these really strange, peculiar sensations that would manifest themselves in a way that I wouldn't be able to talk. So you can imagine mid-conversation in school, in the playground, whatever, um, and I suddenly wouldn't be able to talk, literally rendered mute. I knew exactly what I wanted to say. The words were all in my head, but I just couldn't physically get them out. It was such a surreal experience. It was a bit like the world was going on around me, but for a few seconds, I wasn't really part of it. And so I tried to explain this to my mum who took me to a number of doctors who I think it's fair to say were just completely perplexed by the whole thing and and never really were able to provide me with any answers to what was going on or indeed what what was going on. So it went on for quite a few years and when I was 17 I had a big um, seizure, what I now know was a seizure in my sleep. I was living at home at the time and I remember waking up in my bedroom, um, surrounded by a couple of paramedics and my mum sort of freaking out and I got rushed off to hospital and told in the hospital that I potentially had something called epilepsy, which was, you know, completely new to me. It was a, I'd heard of it, but I didn't really know anything about it. As a result of that, I got referred to a neurologist um, up in Leicester where I live And I remember that meeting so, so clearly. Prior to that meeting, he sent me to have some MRI scans, some pictures taken of my brain. And when I went to see him, he presented me with the results of those scans. He said, "Uh, Lisa, you've got something called a cavernoma in the left side of your brain. And I was like, what's a cavernoma? And he said, well, it's a bit like a strawberry birthmark. Um, It's a benign brain tumour and it's really deep deeply located in the left side of your brain and it's in the area which is responsible for your speech and language which is essentially why your petty mouth small seizures are manifesting themselves in a way that is affecting your speech. So it really made sense and I think it gave me and and my mum as well some answers to those you know eagerly asked questions that we'd had. Um so that I remember feeling relief at the, the fact that I knew my condition had a name and this weirdness had a name. Um, I was told that there would never be any chance of removing this tumour. It would have to just sort of sit in my brain for the rest of my life. I said, but could it bleed? Could it grow? Could it burst? So many questions I had. And 
the neurologist, I remember him saying, yeah, it could. It could do all of those things. And one day it probably will do one of those things. And if that happens, it will probably kill you. And I remember the horror on my mum's face and and sort of that fear and that dread that I felt too. Um, The way he labelled it up was a little bit like a ticking time bomb in my brain that essentially could kill me one day. And, And the thought of that really, really scared me. He also went on to say quite a few other things uh, which weren't particularly helpful looking back. He said, Lisa, people with epilepsy, you know, they they rarely go on to achieve good things in life. You know, they they might struggle to have meaningful relationships, to um, hold down good jobs, to really achieve anything meaningful. And I remember thinking, what the hell is this guy on about? Um, he said, you should never compare your life to that of your friends. He said, you need to avoid late nights, drinking alcohol, getting stressed out, deep sea diving, bungee jumping, um, and, and loads of other things. He said, Lisa, just realize and know that your life is going to have limits. Now, I never saw that neurologist ever again because my intuition at the age of 17 told me that he was a massive idiot. So needless to say, I never saw him again. I got on with my life as best I could. I took the anti-epileptic medication that they prescribed, um, quite a high dose. It didn't really stop the the small seizures. It, It luckily did stop the big grand mal seizures though that I was having. So I continued to have the small petty mal seizures, um, throughout my twenties and they started to worsen, um, as I, as I entered my thirties. I went from having three, four mini seizures a week to having three, four mini seizures a day. And I suppose at this point in my life, late 20s, early 30s, I think I started to become a lot more fearful of potentially what the epilepsy could stop me doing, the limits it inflicted on my life. Um, But bigger than that, I became much more fearful of the ticking time bomb and the fact that one day it could potentially go off and kill me. Um, And this sort of anxiety and fear um, sort of manifested itself into anxiety um, and panic attacks and all of that kind of thing. So I suppose at that moment in my life, I realised that there was something I had to do. I had to seek out a new neurologist, someone that could maybe give me more of an understanding, provide me with some more reassurance. And I just felt like I needed to do that for my own peace of mind and to give myself a little bit more clarity around the condition. I was successful in finding an amazing neurologist who goes by the name of Matthew Walker, who's based down at the National Hospital of Neurology and Neurosurgery, Queen Square, London. He, I think what was really evident from the moment I met Matthew was that he saw people with epilepsy through a much more optimistic lens than the previous neurologists I'd I'd seen. Um, Matthew essentially replaced my fear with hope. He he told, he was very honest with me, he said that it would be unlikely that we'd ever be able to remove the, the benign brain tumour in my brain because it was in an area that was so close to my speech and language, it would be really hard to operate and, and remove it. But he said, you know, there are a number of options, Lisa, with regards to medication and we can trial these and, and see if it can have a better effect on you than the, the medication that you currently take it. So Matthew became my neurologist. I continued to see him every single year for a routine checkup. And 
sadly, my my seizures, my petty mal, the small seizures that we're having, didn't really get any better through trials of various different medications. But um, I I guess I just found ways to live with them. You know, I I adapted to situations. I avoided certain situations that could potentially trigger a seizure. And I think the older I got, I learned to accept the condition and the potential that this ticking time bomb could potentially one day explode and I guess at best have a cataclysmic effect on my life and at worst it could kill me. I never thought about surgery as an option because for so many years I was told that it would just never be possible to remove something in that particular area of my brain. But in 2015, I attended a routine appointment in London with my neurologist, Matthew Walker, and he said something that I wasn't expecting. He said, Lisa, I think it's time to explore brain surgery. And I remember being like, what? No way. My life is good. I don't fancy going through brain surgery. And obviously we spoke about it at some length. We spoke about the benefits of it, that being it could Um, reduce my epilepsy it could improve it Uh, but the biggest benefit for me and the thing I focused on was the removal of this ticking time bomb could essentially take away my fear in particular my fear to go to sleep at night in case I didn't wake up and that in itself was enough to push me into exploring this option further so I agreed to meet with the neurosurgeon And again, I remember that day very clearly. He was very, very um, certain in in what he told me. He said it would not be an easy operation. He said it's going to carry with it huge risks. That of a hemorrhage, stroke, risk to your life. And I remember him saying, you're going to have to learn to read and write again and talk again. So um, there are... There are consequences to this operation. He says it has to be your choice as to whether or not to go through with this operation. And he said, if I do perform the operation, you're going to have to be awake. Now, that in itself, the thought of being awake during brain surgery absolutely scared me to death. Um, You know, and it essentially said to me that I had more to lose than I had to gain in going ahead with this, this operation. My family were pretty much against it. They they were of the opinion that I should just take my chances and, and hopefully live a good life with, with the ticking time bomb. Um, but there was something inside of me that, that, that spoke to me and it was a feeling I'd, I'd probably only had a handful of times in my life. It was a feeling of... Um, a feeling of wanting to explore this more, a feeling that it was potentially the right thing to do even though it didn't make a lot of sense it it kind of defied logic and reason and all of those things and this feeling wouldn't go away and the only way that I can describe it it was like a hum you know like a a dull feeling or sound that just would not go away despite the fear I had despite the fact that it didn't make any sense to have the operation I had this underlying hum that was I guess, pushing me forward to explore it a little bit more. And the quieter I became, the louder the hum became and it radiated through the whole of my body. Um, If I didn't focus on it, it kind of dulled out a bit. The only way I can draw a comparison is if you know like the fridge in your home, 
you, you hear that gentle hum, right? And it's there all the time. And quite often we don't hear it because we're not focusing on it. But when we do, it's like the only thing that we hear. Um, it's not the best comparison, but that that's how it was. And I just learned to really focus on that, that sound and that feeling. And the more I did and the more I quiet around, quiet, quietened around me, the other things that were going on, the louder it became. And so that was the reason why I essentially decided to go ahead with having the operation. I was also uh, reading a book at the time and this passage in the book that I was reading really spoke to me. It said, you know, it's your intuition when you arrive at the answer without any logical reason of how you got there. And that was exactly it. Every pretty much every single person in my life thought I was crazy for going ahead with this operation. But deep down, I knew I knew that it was absolutely the right thing to do. And I knew that it would be a game changer. So on the 31st of March 2016, I entered the casino of neurosurgery um, with my only crutch being the sound of my hum, the power of my intuition, my driving force. My family and friends were obviously there for me, supporting me every step of the way, but they were terrified um, of the decision that I'd made. And I don't remember, like looking back now, I don't remember feeling that scared on, on the morning of the operation. Obviously, I was you know, a little bit anxious, but I wasn't really scared. And I think that's the beauty of, of intuition. It has the power to numb your fear. It's essentially your sixth sense at play and it can be much louder than your ego or your rational mind in any fears that you have. And I think trusting in that and surrendering to my home or my intuition is definitely what got me to that moment and, and got me through the operation. Now, I'm not going to go into the graphic complexities of being awake through through brain surgery. Needless to say, it was one of the most surreal um, experiences that I've I, I can't really liken to anything else that I've ever experienced in my life. Um, so, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it there. But the tumour was removed successfully. Um, I spent a couple of nights on ICU and a week in hospital, three months recovering physically and then about 12 months with speech and language therapists to learn to talk again and, and read and write. And as part of this journey of recovery, I agreed to do something um, a few months after brain surgery. And this is what led to euphrenity. So I was asked to take part in a research project. So what I was asked to do was essentially gift my brain to science. And I remember asking, why do you want to use my brain? Like every, everyone in the planet has a brain. Why, why do you want to use mine? And they said, it's not just you. It's people that have had brain surgery. What happens is their brains revert back to something called the parasympathetic nervous system. And I remember thinking, what the hell are you talking about? And the way that they described it was they said, your brain is going to go back to behaving in a way that it should um, before, you know, evolution, society and culture got in the way. It's going to it's going to be a bit like having a new computer. And I was excited. I was really excited to take part in in this this program where I allowed neuro researchers to scan my brain so that they could understand the complexities of the human mind and how our emotions worked. 
I also took part in loads of experiments that had been developed to elevate and heighten the level of some of the feel-good chemicals and neurotransmitters in our brain, things like dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin. And the length of this program was about, went on for about 18 months. And during that time, we were able to capture a a monumental body of scientific research that concluded that we do indeed have the power to maintain and improve positive mental health. Within that, we also stumbled on the biochemical formula for attaining euphoria and serenity, which obviously gave rise to the name of my business, Euphrenity. So Euphrenity Um, was established in 2017. It's a training consultancy. I collaborate with a number of neuroprofessionals and experts in the field. And together we deliver courses, workshops and retreats all over the world to organisations and individuals as well. And it teaches people not only how to maintain and improve positive mental health, but how to attain those those feel good Um, neurotransmitters um, that can radically improve our mental health. So I guess that's it. That's the backstory of Euphrenity, how it was born and what it is. I really hope you enjoyed it. I hope it made sense. I I, I really hope it didn't come across as self-indulgent or or unrelatable. I hope it gave you some insights into into what it is and what some of the stuff is that we're going to talk about in, in future episodes. So I guess to conclude, I love neurobiology. I absolutely do. Quantum science, neurobiological equations, they're they're my thing. It's what I understand. It's what I love and it's what I love to teach. But through my experience, I'm very, very aware that it's not just about the neurons. I've learned and I believe that there is something inside all of us that's much, much bigger than us. And that's our intuition, our gut instinct or our hum, as I like to call it. And to quote Albert Einstein, he said, the first step to mastering your mind is knowing that the only real valuable thing is intuition. So this seems like a really great place to stop. So I'm going to really wrap it up now. Intuition is a fundamental part of the Euphrenity teachings. And over the course of the coming weeks, we're going to be hearing from some of the experts in that particular field, professionals, speakers, and they're going to be sharing their insights, some tools and techniques that will help us uncover our intuition a little bit more. Because it is the biggest gift we have. It's our superpower. It's our internal sat-nav that knows the way. So join us next time for future episodes of Mind Over Matter, where I'll be sharing with you the other pillars that make up the teachings of Euphrenity. And we're going to have some guest speakers speaking about those too. So thank you so much for listening. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, and remember to tune in to the sound of your home.